they stopped researching the effects of ultrasound on a human fetus in 1993. So this is an important thing to consider. Just because the technician understands that ultrasounds might potentially cause harm doesn't mean they know how to actually use ultrasound as well. So you have to make sure that you have a very educated and conscious technician. You can't just leave the ultrasound stick or whatever Doppler you want to call it on the fetus or on the womb for long periods of time. It just, just another thing that centralized medicine has failed with. I mean, it, it's so, it's absolutely absurd because I can't really, it's hard for me to actually find one or two things that centralized medicine is flawless in. This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. Welcome back, boys and girls, men and women, to Decentralized Radio. Today we're having uh, another part two, actually. We're talking to Zaid, a good friend of ours, has his own podcast, the 2AM podcast. Really good stuff. Posts a lot of really, really good threads, just like Tristan over here, who also posts a lot of good threads. I don't even try because it's like, you know, they got the thread thing covered. I'm just going to stay in my lane. But I love reading them, and I always get hyped. I read them. I go tell everyone about them. No one understands what I'm saying, but I still yell at them anyways because I want them to get it. I'm trying to knock at the door of curiosity. And that's what I love about both of you guys, really, before I ramble on too long, is that when we talked to Zaid last, many moons ago, it was one of our earliest podcasts, and I've seen so much growth in all of our mindsets since then. And what I love about people like you and Tristan here, is that you're not afraid to be wrong. You're not afraid to be curious. And you're always seeking out new knowledge. And I think that that's very valuable. There's no dogma. And so that's why I wanted Zade back on because there's just so much more new things to talk about since last time we talked. Oh, sorry there. I was just saying there's so much new stuff to, to dive into since last time we talked. But Tristan, how are you doing down under? Oh, it's good, man. It's, uh, yeah, 7 a.m. Sun's been out for an hour and a half, two hours, uh, which is cool. Early sunrise is big fan of that. Beach has been nice when we got in there, but damn, it is hot. Did I'm, you get skin uh, cancer yet? Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> not yet. But it's pretty crazy how just watching the sunrise and really being out in that morning sun has prevented me from getting so I haven't gotten sun you know, I've, and the UV was as high as like 13 and compared to when I was in Wyoming, it was like four. So it, it's cool. It shows that this stuff works um, as well as the fact that I know I'm not built to be in the heat for 12 months out of the year. I can tell you that much, but it's great to get some local seasonal produce and sunshine in. Yeah. Is 13 the highest, by the way, it goes to? No, I was in Costa Rica before, and it was like 14 or 15. I think 15 might be the highest. I don't even know. Some metrics that actually just have like a 13-plus thing. So oh, it's yeah. just like, okay, whatever it is after that. And and that's interesting as well. And it might depend on where you are in terms of just the atmosphere because a lot of the UV gets eaten up in, 
in the ionosphere and, and then the ozone layer as well. When there was like a hole in the ozone, there was way higher UV coming through, which you could maybe argue that that might have been a good thing for some places. <laughs> <laughs> or some yeah, people, yeah. Because I, I know right here, right now, I think our peak is still three and you have like maybe 45 minutes of it and then it goes down to two. And then, but I'm st- every day that's nice, I'm trying to get out as much as possible, work on the cold. And that's something I, we can get into later in the podcast, just about embracing seasonality a little bit and sort of just like when it gets cold, embrace the cold, feel the cold, go out in the cold, don't try to avoid the cold, all that kind of stuff. Because I think that's what keeps your mitochondria strong throughout the winter. And uh, especially depending on haplotype and stuff like that and how tightly coupled your mitochondria are and stuff like that. And you're, plus, I mean, just the environment you're in right now dictates a lot of a lot of those things as well. So it's super interesting. And those are all the things that you've been writing about, everybody. And it like, keeps blowing my mind. Even, if, even though I know some of the things innately, when I reread them, it blows my mind a secondary time. But before we get into that, Zaid, you are a new, you are a brand new father. So I want to congratulate you on that Thank adventure you. for the next 18 years. And then the adult phase, as I call it, uh, after that. But tell us about a little bit of your journey because you've had, you, you went from an unconventional way, more of a holistic route with, with your guys' birth. And so it was not free of error um, or adventure. And I'd love for you to sort of tell us about that journey. Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you, by the way. It's, um, it's, it's quite a journey just uh, being introduced to fatherhood at I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to turn 27 in January. So I'm still relatively young compared to how most, you know, I guess the average parent these days, especially with Western society and, and all of these other belief systems. But, um, it's been amazing so far. I was never going to go down the route of conventional birth, let's say in the sense of just, you know, automatically checking into the, to the hospital, not really focusing on prenatal care, not having a midwife. So off the bat, um, we were grateful to have, um, I mean, my fiance's aunt is one of the best midwives in the nation, Lisa Marie Oxenham. And she's also, um, it's actually a midwife couple. So Lisa Marie Oxenham and Richard Oxenham, and they've done collectively probably well over almost 800 births, a thousand births. So they're definitely, um, they're definitely veterans in their field. And I just appreciate how, how much intention and how holistic these individuals um, approach birth because I don't think we get that from the conventional system. We certainly don't get that from centralized medicine and in most doctors. And so, uh, yeah, really just valuing the holistic and more comprehensive approach to birth is, is really been big for me. And I don't think I could have gone down any other route. So what were some of the challenges that you guys faced along the way? It's actually, I'd love to know just more in depth of like what that process is like. I'm not a father. Uh, I know Tristan's not a father yet, um, but but I, what like what does that entail? Because I know you had like like you said a midwife and stuff like that. Like what is that process? Like what do you look for? For instance, when you're trying to find a midwife, if you want to go down that route, you don't want to be in a hospital setting. What do you think about things like doing um, ultrasounds and all these things? I know um, Stephen Lubka has been making some posts about that. Uh, who's been on guest on the podcast? I'd love just to dive down that rabbit hole a little bit with you. Yeah, I mean, you have to look at a whole bunch of things. I think most importantly, you have to look at the midwife's experience. So how many actual births has this person gone to? Um, I think in the initial stages, you have to to look at, you have to take a look at how they speak about 
the birth process in general, because from my perspective, I honestly think a midwife is a wizard. I think they're able to do things that most conventional MDs cannot, um, most conventional OBs cannot. And so um, I, I think it's more intuitive. When you come across a great midwife, you just know that they're, they have come to show up, they've come prepared, and most importantly, they have the experience. So, you know, we can dive into like prenatal care, everything from the nutrition approach to the light approach. I think that'd be awesome because I think all that's critical for development. And then also we can talk about a little bit how we carry those things post-birth as well, especially around light exposure and things like that. Because I know some people say like, don't put your baby in the sun, like all, all this type of stuff. So I'd love to know sort of your, your angle on that and what you guys have been doing as well. Yeah. So we've, we've really, I think throughout the whole process, um, we've really been focused on beef liver pills. Like those, those things have been an absolute godsend, especially because my fiance runs a little bit anemic. Um, so we, we went through all the blood testing. We went through everything that, um, that was required to make sure that everything was in check. But, um, I think blood, beef liver pills are something that's highly underexplored for pregnant women, especially the year leading up to the pregnancy. Um, because oftentimes, the, I mean, the woman needs that, that type of nutrition. The placenta needs that. The baby needs that because it's all a feedback mechanism. And it's, essentially, if you're not getting nutrition and you're, you're feeding yourself the conventional Western food that most pregnant women are, then you're going to run into some serious problems, especially when you get into like um, renal tube defects and B12 and a whole bunch of other, this other stuff. But, um, Outside of that, like, um, what do you guys want me to focus on more specifically? Because it's it's quite a broad topic. I don't want to get too overwhelmed with with trying to pick something out. <laughs> hey, friend! Thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you left us a five star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. Yeah, because I think I think for me, actually, I'm I'm most interested in sort of one during pregnancy. How do we make sure that we're giving the child the best developmental chances and advantages? Obviously, nutrition is part of that. I think that's hyper focused on. Like, I don't like. For instance, you could we could talk like one ten seconds on like what do you think about generic prenatal vitamins? For instance, you know what I mean. Um, probably the answer is their crap. Um, uh, but I think that's an interesting point you made about the beef liver supplementation. And this kind of ties back into our discussion we had in our very first podcast that I would point to about smart supplementation versus just blindly throwing supplements at something because you hear they're good. You did a workup and you decided based on history, this is a good idea. You know what I mean? And so, well, I think you're right. It's probably a good overall point of view supplementation is sort of an art form in and of itself. And so it deserves that care and not just throwing things at something, especially when you're trying to, you know, grow a child, you know what I mean? And, and protect it. I'd love to even think about things like, and this is kind of getting into the realm of um, edge of our knowledge base. But I, I think about things like raising or, or growing a fetus in a highly NEMF environment in your house. Like how do you, how did you guys think about that, for instance, around, around care? Um, yeah. And then I think light would be kind of cool, too, because I'm always jazzed about light. I just think, I think ultimately, like, the, um, it always comes down to the basics. 
So for example, you know, of course, spring water, nutrition, beef liver pills, sunlight, these are all things that, that we've definitely pushed for. And I think uh, we need to understand that the human body already understands how to go about this entire process. So it's more so about keeping yourself protected from these sort of toxins or detrimental things such as non-native EMF. Um, you have, I mean, toxic shower products, you have the municipal water. Um, so it's more so about keeping yourself protected from all that stuff and just letting the body go through its natural process because I, I'm, I'll be completely honest, like we didn't have anything, we didn't have everything perfect, but we were 85 to 90% of the way there. And uh, I, I really do think that a large part of that is light. Like I've gone to a little bit of Cruz's perspective on um, prenatal light and postpartum and NICU and all these other things. So uh, I, I think that's that's definitely helped us big time because if you, if you just think about it, when, when the baby's in the womb, that red and near-infrared light that you get from the sun is so important. So we definitely focused on the sunlight. We definitely focused on a little bit of photobiomodulation here and there. Um, but like I said, took care of the basics and then let the body do do the rest. Yeah, I mean, that's really important. And I'll let, sorry, I'll let Tristan chime in really quickly. I was just thinking because when I think about my birth a lot, and I know when you work with clients, for instance, you sort of like to hear about their early life. Did they have lots of infections? Were they natural birth? Were they C-section? All these sort of interesting things that sort of add up to certain mitochondrial damage later in life or, or sets them up for certain things. And I think about the fact that when my mom was pregnant with me, for instance, she had gestational diabetes with both mm -hmm. me and my brother. And I think about why, and I think about what could this set me up for? What things do I need to think about? And so it, it just, it just makes me think like, what could we focus on? I think you said it perfectly. It's basically the basics. It's like fundamentally what do humans need to thrive, focus on mitigation of the things that are in an environment that are not beneficial and then trying to maximize those other things. But I'll let Tristan jump in here because I've been talking a lot. Yeah, you're good. I mean, I think what you said is really important for people because it's not about like perfection. Like it's actually impossible. It's never going to happen in a modern world. And that goes with health, like in general. Um, it's just about, yeah, really just trying to do the best that you can given your situation. And, you know, that could be leaps and bounds of improvement compared to if you don't be deliberate, if you're not deliberate about kind of your actions and, and what you're putting forth. So yeah, I think it's really cool to see that there's a lot of folks now really focusing in on, on what they can do to optimize their environment for the next generation. And I think it's really important because if we don't do this, it's going to be a disaster because we're only now seeing the effects of all these things and the next generation or the younger generation it's only going to get worse because now you think of all these kids who are just exposed to all these toxins at a really early age, instead of like all, we're all the same age pretty much here. So we didn't get cell phones, like smartphones until high school, maybe first cell phones, late middle school. Um, we, when we were like eight years old, we didn't really do anything on technology. I mean, yeah, artificial light was the thing, but it wasn't that pervasive and now it's just happening earlier and earlier. So imagine that generation where they're getting phones when they're four or five years old, iPads, then they're going to grow up and they're going to have children. Their children are going to be screwed. Like it's just, it's just really, really bad. And I'm, I'm fearful of it, but it's cool to see that folks like yourself are taking these actionable steps to go about it. And 
yeah, I guess I guess the thing maybe to ask is you probably yeah the the diet perspective is really always harped on so much like Ryan said so it's it's cool to see you kind of talking about light more and I know from the diet perspective it's it's really easy just to eat like real food Weston A Price is it's really popular they have a a whole kind of uh, diet specific I think for for pregnant nursing women so. Yeah. What was your kind of biggest inspiration or were there things you tweaked along the way that maybe didn't feel right or kind of uh, felt like they needed to be more of a focus area maybe? And did you treat different stages of the pregnancy like different? Because I know between trimesters, obviously uh, your fiance is feeling a ton different. So was there different um, steps that you took or different modalities that you implemented as well? Mm. Um, in terms of changes, uh, definitely, you know, taking direction from my midwife in terms of adding the beef liver pills, even getting like a methylated form of vitamin B12, a whole B complex that's methylated. Those were important things for us, especially because both of us have an MTHFR gene mutation. And we can get into the efficacy of that and whether you can actually fix that just with light alone. Because um, I know Cruz and some other people have talked about that. But um, Outside of that, I think, by the way, keep this in mind to the whole perfection point. We found out about the pregnancy five months into the pregnancy. So we weren't even aware of a lot of the things that we were doing because we just didn't know. And so that goes to show how important mindset is. Because if we did know and we, we were basically being neurotic about it, how would that impact the health of the baby? And, you know, Enzo's a, the healthiest baby boy that I've come across that I've ever seen, to be honest. Um, I even I even have friends who, like, have eight-month-old babies, but they're not even holding the same weight as an almost, almost two-month-old baby. So, you know, in terms of other changes, I would say um, definitely limiting ultrasound was a big part of uh, – was a big red, red pill for me because before our midwife, I had no idea that w- that was even a thing. Um, and, and people can refer to, I believe, believe it's the 50 human studies by Jim West. I think that's the book that really puts forth the research on how detrimental ultrasound can be. And, um, outside of that, what else? Well, that, that one's a cool, I want to dive into that a little bit. Cause that's something I re- like went through when my sis, my sister, uh, had a baby two years ago, my nephew is two years old and it's the same thing. Wait, wait until they're two, wait until Enzo is two he's going to be like leaps and bounds ahead of everyone. And it's going to blow your mind. Like my nephew is way is bigger than all two-year-olds, like bigger than three, four-year-olds can talk. Four-year-olds, some four-year-olds literally can't talk now. And this is like rural Wyoming too. This isn't even in a city. Um, but the ultrasounds was, was something that really blew my mind because when my sister was pregnant, they, they wanted her to come in like, it was like every three weeks to get an ultrasound. And my mom was like, no fucking way you're doing that. That's first off, it's such a waste of money. Obviously they had to drive because it's Wyoming, like an hour each way to do this. So yeah, my sister definitely, I don't know if she read into some of the studies you're mentioning, but you can fill the audience in, but that was something that really blew my mind. And I realized that this is totally just a way to make money, more money off of pregnant women is to like, say how ultrasounds need to be this regular um, to come in. And, and I didn't even think about from the EMF, from the artificial light, the stress, um, that whole perspective has to be like really detrimental to the health of the child and the mother. 
Dude, and, and by the way, the FDA, I believe, if I have this set correct, because I, I did come across this, they stopped researching the effects of ultrasound on a human fetus in 1993. So from 1993 to 2023, we, we've limited the amount of, of research that we've dug into this. Um, and also, like, they've also increased the, the threshold of the power of ultrasound by like eight, eight to 10 times ever since that point. So yeah, you, have wild. To, you have to ask yourself, like, what kind of incentive structure has been created to allow for that in the first place? Because most people think of ultrasound, they just think, oh, well, you know, harmless sound waves, what could happen to, to, my, to my baby or my fetus? And I was like, I didn't even ever think about that. But yeah, it's between two and 12 megahertz. And obviously, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty high power machine. And just oh, the hospital, usually those situations, like those areas are, they're EMF like bombs. I mean, I don't know how oh, yeah. I want to say it's just like, there's so much high powered equipment plugged in um, all the time. And then yeah, it's proximity, you're, you're right on the yeah. stomach. So did you guys do none? Or did you limit them to just like one at the end? Or did you? How did you go about doing that? I think in total, we did, we did three. I, okay. I remember, yeah, we did three specifically, but we definitely uh, limited it. Um, we also, this is an important thing to consider just because the technician understands that ultrasounds might potentially cause harm doesn't mean they know how to actually use ultrasound as well. So you have to make sure that you have a very educated and conscious technician because it's all about how you handle the actual machine. You can't just leave the ultrasound stick or whatever Doppler you want to call it on the fetus or on the womb for long periods of time. You have to make sure that she goes over it and then releases it off every single time she's not actually um, looking at the at the uh, graph or whatever it is. But, you know, this is something I still have to educate myself on. I still haven't read 50 studies by Jim West um, or whatever his name is. So it's something that I can't really speak on too in depth. Well, I got a study that was sent to me by a friend that came out uh literally like a month ago and it's a review on emf exposure and abort and abortion and pregnant in pregnant women and basically the conclusion showed that emf exposure had a significant effect on miscarriage rates and it showed that yeah kind of the those who are exposed to high levels of emf had a, had a very increased risk of, of miscarriage and this is a comprehensive uh, meta-analysis so like it's not, and, and it was everything from, you know, cell phone radiation probably to incorporating, I, I would imagine, ultrasounds to some degree. But I'll, I'll have to read that as well because it's, like, it's, again, it's everything we're talking about. Here's a paper that shows something that probably makes logical sense. Uh, you're just stressing out the body. You're giving it the wrong input signals. So I'll, I'll have to send this to you guys. I'm going to post about it eventually. But yeah, that'd it, just, be awesome. like, it just blew my mind. And that fact that there's actually people researching this, I mean, they're probably not, they're definitely not from the U.S. Um, and, or getting funding from the NIH, but, you know, it's, uh, it's wild. Um, it just, just another thing that centralized medicine has failed with. Um, it, it's so, it's absolutely absurd because I can't really, it's hard for me to actually find one or two things that centralized medicine is flawless in. I mean, surgery, maybe. Broken bones and... Uh, yeah, but it's it's yeah. it's few and far between. Everything yeah. else, there's some second, third, fourth order consequence, or it's just outright dangerous. 
Yeah, and it's it's just how it goes. Like just talking to some researchers recently and about studying things that have no they have no profit product. They get no funding. And this mm-hmm. is actually one of the biggest issues with research and then people like Lane Norton, these guys that oh, need God, a yeah. double blind placebo study to prove anything. It's like, well, they're not being funded to study these things because there's no benefit from an ROI perspective to tell people to go outside, eat real food and avoid, you know, EMFs. But I guess uh, maybe getting into more specifics of towards the end of your pregnancy, you, you had a plan. And then I think it went like maybe a little, not according to your, your plan, but it still worked <laughs> out obviously fantastic. So how was, maybe walk us through that and, and what you learned from that experience because it was a good, I, I appreciated your perspective on when you do actually need to use the centralized healthcare system and not be, you know, kind of ignorant to the fact that this could probably save your life potentially. Yeah, which by the way is a great indicator of an awesome midwife. Uh, if you have a midwife who just completely shuns centralized medicine and hospitals, I would be weary. I, I wouldn't necessarily go with them because there are going to be edge cases. There are going to be times where an emergency does pop up and you do have to go to the hospital. So um, that, that's something to look out for, for those expecting parents out there. Yeah. So we went, uh, you know, we went about the whole, con- uh, the whole typical midwife stuff. Um, I, so during the actual birth process, I mean, we stayed at home for maybe seven to 10 hours. My fiance was going through contractions normally. She progressed, um, I think to about four or five centimeters dilated. I'm not sure how much, but Anyways, eventually we got up to a point where she was noticing that the pain was a little bit too intense. Um, our doula came at like 4.30 in the morning. She, she, helped, she helped me. She helped my fiance. And then over the course of a few hours, my midwife ended up coming towards the latter end of the experience. And, you know, she does her whole fancy testing. She has her intuition. She goes through the whole nine yards. And eventually she noticed that um, something was seriously, seriously wrong. She hypothesized she could felt that she could feel that it was potentially an infection. And this began, began to make sense in my mind because her, um, her water broke before she even went into labor. And that dramatically raises the risk of infection if that happens. So, um, yeah, we, we had to do an emergency transport to the hospital, went to the hospital. Um, even though my midwife, and, and by the way, this is, this is chalk. This is one of the best hospitals out there and, and they have more, a more progressive approach to birth, believe it or not. But it still took us, it still took them two hours to actually get an epidural and antibiotics into her after she got into the hospital. So I think that's one of the potential negatives, even at one of the best hospitals available, because um, they're just not on the ball as much as they need to be, especially with something like sepsis, which is what my fiance ended up having. And uh, yeah, just went about that process. Uh, It was definitely nerve wracking as uh, I think it was one of the more important experiences in my life because, you know, you just don't know what the outcome is going to be, especially with an infection, labor, a whole bunch of this other stuff. Um, but, you know, I, I think there was a serious problem with how the first doctor and the first set of nurses approached us because they essentially just kept trying to push us into an emergency C-section without trying to actually explain what was going on. Like, it's one thing for you to tell expecting parents in labor that, you know, you have sepsis, infection, baby's at risk. But it's another thing to actually sit down with them and go, you know, A through Z and really explain what the risk is. 
And so we waited for a shift change. We waited for a new doctor to come in. And thankfully, the new doctor did exactly that. He explained everything from A to Z. And from that perspective, it made sense for us to go into a C-section because that's not what we wanted. We wanted a natural birth. And if we were able to push for that, then we would have done that. But um, I'm very grateful for that experience. And I think it really showed us the full spectrum of not only home birth, but centralized medicine. So we got to see the entire thing at play, really. Uh, <clears throat> that's actually a really interesting experience. I mean, I... It, I, I have that same sort of issue when I, whenever I go to a doctor, even even within functional medicine, where um, there's this lack of explanation to the patient that really sort of irks me because I feel like even the average Joe Jim out there it has a yearning to understand why something is happening to them or why they're being told X Y Z to do, and it doesn't seem to happen as a commonplace act, especially when you go to the normal like general like general practitioner or uh, even in some functional medicine settings where you're given certain supplements or whatever, and they don't really tell you, okay, what each of these things are for. So I th I'm glad that you guys pushed for that because I think it is important to understand the breadth of a situation, no matter what that situation is, especially when it concerns your health and the severity of an outcome like that. I mean, you want to know everything. And I think it's important to want to know and, and, and make the best decision without just being pressured. Um, and I've found that to be a lot of cases in sort of those um, emergency settings. I've gone to the emergency room several times, not necessarily for myself, but with somebody else. And it's sort of like a panic state in there. Yeah. And there's like lots of confusion and don't really know what's happening. And I've had situations where they'd go for the completely wrong thing. And then you just get like put on stuff that did nothing and probably actually made your overall health situation worse long-term because they just shoved a bunch of stuff into you out of like panic and no, no dictation. It's really crazy. So I'd actually love to you. We kind of talked about this earlier, but in, in, in sort of your mind, um, and it's a big question, obviously, but how would you like, how would you model these situations um, better? How could we make, um, how would a more decentralized way uh, be uh, beneficial for patients. I think just being able to explain situations better um, would be mega beneficial. And I think it would ease the tension because you don't want that stress, especially the mother's already in distress. You don't want that then going into, you know, the child is trying to be born because all that reads off each other. Yeah. By the way, sorry for the uh, attack helicopters above me. I didn't, of course, right when You're we're good. going off. You're good. Um, Jose can clip the sound, so... It's, it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> Editing is where the magic happens is what I've always been told. Absolutely. But yeah, you're, I mean, you're on the ball. Education has to be the first and foremost step. Um, I really do believe that doctors should be the most educated out there. Um, not only from a centralized perspective, but from a decentralized perspective. And it, it is a very tough question because it essentially means that you have to uproot the entire centralized paradigm in order for, for a more, beneficial process to, to, uh, to happen in the first place. So, um, what I would really say is, you know, it, it, going through that experience has opened my eyes and really allowed me to develop more empathy for everyday people who don't know this stuff within health. Like if I was the average normie and I had no idea of artificial light or non-native EMF or, you know, some experimental gene therapy that they want you to take and some other stuff over here, I mean, I would, uh, well, first of all, I, I don't know if I would necessarily feel helpless because I would still be ignorant. So I don't know what I don't know. 
But uh, once you, even as somebody who's as educated as I am going into that situation, I was like, my adrenaline was pumping. I was on high alert. I was nervous. So it wasn't the best situation that I would have loved to be in. Um, but uh, it's, I, I, I honestly don't see, see it being changed in the foreseeable future. And that's the really scary thing. Because like I said, it's going to require a complete paradigm shift. And I just don't see that happening unless something drastic happens, to be honest. Yeah, it's it's really scary. And what's cool about your story is like you had you you did so many things like optimal for for your situation and then things didn't go according to plan. You had to make some compromises, but you're still raising the child in a very optimal environment. So obviously things are going to be fantastic for for you and your family, but then everyone else, they're doing suboptimal things like literally the entire time. The birthing process suboptimal and then the, everything after is as well. So it's like across the board. Whereas if you have, you know, maybe one tiny little moment, it's not perfect, but it's still, you know, optimal from a holistic perspective. And yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. And I don't, I don't know the statistics, but of around just how things have changed uh, in maybe in the past few decades, but I, I just know from the ultrasound perspective, my mom, when she was pregnant, she said they maybe had two, three ultrasounds. That was what was recommended. And now it's, you know, nine or 10. Um, and then something else I know and something I want to get your opinion on, because I haven't asked my sister about this because it's kind of a weird subject, is uh, just vaccinations in general. So that's uh, and you don't have to answer this if you don't feel comfortable. Ripped but it I'm, out of I'm my mouth, curious. Tristan. Oh, man, I feel I feel so comfortable. I want to attack it. Yeah, because from my understanding, just the amount that's recommended in the first and I don't know the scheduling, the first year, the first two years is like three to 10 X. You know, you hear RFK talking about all these things. Autism, heavy metal exposure is, is through the roof. So maybe. Yeah. What what did you experience in this? Is this something that happens like right after birth or is it more, you know, the, the following six months where they're like, come in and get your 45 shots. And yeah. what's your stance? Yeah. So th- this is something they will push for. If you do go to a hospital, um, they won't. So most of the jabs, I, I, you know, I kind of want to hesitate from using the other word because I know you guys are probably going to post this on YouTube, right? Yeah, true. yeah, so yeah, jabs, I don't know how much I jabs, most of them are going to be recommended after the baby is born. But like, you know, once you start going to the doctor for, for the normal routine checkups, like two months in, three months in, all the way up to age or 18 months in, something along those lines, um, what they will really push for, at least most hospitals, I think all of them is number one, the hep B vaccine, so hepatitis B, um, which made no sense to me off the bat because you only really get that if um, A, the mother tests positive for it, B, uh, you share needles in the in the drug context, or C, you engage in uh, homosexual behavior. Like those, those are the only three ways that you get that. And this is right off the bat. So this is like right when you have birth, the day, they have yeah. a list of things that they want you to get. So they, they essentially want you to get the hep B vaccine, um, synthetic vitamin K, and then the eye ointment. Mm. Those are, those oh, are the three things that I've come across. Um, but, but yeah, like I said, I mean, if it, first of all, most almost every mother out there tests negative for hep B because they're just not doing that stuff. They're not sharing needles. 
hepatitis A is something that we rarely find in the States. Um, and once, uh, so again, it's like this, this intervention on steroids, what they call, what, what people in the home, um, midwifery, uh, industry call the cascade of intervention. They'll recommend one thing and then that'll lead to another and another and another. And eventually you're just, you're absolutely fucked. Yeah, I just want to say quickly, yes, yeah, so I just want to say quickly, I was stuck on mute there is it seems because like you're saying you're in this kind of like stressed out environment and then it's like it, it seems so easy like everyone is so ripe for the taking to just be like the doctor or whoever is recommending these things which like you just said they make no sense in the context uh but so many people just a they have no idea about anything they're not well researched like you are um and then it's a very stressful situation that you're in so they're just like, oh, yeah, sure, okay. And then that – Yeah, exactly. That's it. So it's it's really – to me, it's taking advantage of people in a situation like that that is – it's just unacceptable. So that that's great to hear that you kind of like had that understanding right away. Um, and and but, by the way, what I find most um, – what I find insidious, for lack of a better word, is that the nurses weren't – the nurses weren't talking up the Hep B vaccine because of all these potential health dangers. All they said was that, yeah, your, your kid won't be able to go to public school or be admitted to daycare. And I'm like, why, yeah. why do I want my kid to go into this <laughs> anyways? Like, Darn. Yeah. yeah. But, but, but I yeah. think for I think for a lot of normal people, that's like a big deal because – Yeah, it is and actually, And it's actually a, a great way to, quote, indoctrinate uh, a situation because you can't go to community college without XYZ you know, jab because you have to have it to go to school. And so if you don't have that mindset of like, oh, there's all this world out here that I could pursue that doesn't involve any of that, you feel like you're stuck. And that's sort of the mindset shift you have to break. Plus, I think like you said, Tristan, you're in that heat of the moment where you just had your child, mother's extremely tired, dad's probably extremely tired. I know my dad was after 36 hours of dealing with that stuff with me, um, that you just kind of like, yeah, let's just do whatever so we can get out of here and go home and enjoy maybe one night's rest before it starts getting rough again. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. And I think the more that you sort of go down the rabbit hole, the, like you said, with the, with the happy, the more backwards, everything makes, it makes no sense. There's no like logical. They, they just back you up against the wall, right? Let's say the same thing with the COVID jabs, right? They just like forced everyone. They forced uh, universities and employers and across the board. So if your back's up against against the wall, like you're going to have to make a decision, right? So that's why being, you know, more of a sovereign individual and decentralized is really important because then you don't have to compromise on things you don't want to. But I guess, yeah, well, Zaid, I can let you chime in there. But I, I want to hear more about how things have been going since and, and the regular checkups as well. Um, yeah. So that's probably even worse from pushing yeah. you onto these things. Are you interested in 100% grass-fed, grass-finished bison meat? I'm excited to be a partner with Falls Family Ranches. Based in Wyoming, Falls Family Ranches is raising high-quality bison meat the way nature intended. As a native large ruminant of North America, Bison is one of the most nutrient-dense foods you can consume. If you're interested in trying out their bison boxes, use code TRISTAN, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, 10, for 10% off your first order. And um, I'll, I'll be very clear here. I'll, I'll share my stance on the jabs in general. Um, 
I think most of them, if not all of them, are just they offer more damaging risk than mm-hmm. they do benefit. And he, here's this is the level to which I took it. So once I started going down this rabbit hole, I went through every single package insert for these jabs. Every single one. I looked at the the side effects, potential side effects. I looked at the the research that they offered. Um, and really, it doesn't. None of it adds up for me. None of it adds up, especially when you look into like polio, for example. There are three types of polio. The most severe paralytic form of polio, you have about a 0.5 to like 2% chance of even contracting. If you even get that form of polio, you have a 50% chance of recovering from it. Um, And the overall risk to reward ratio, I mean, we're talking about probabilistic thinking. Like I I do value that. Like let's look at the numbers. For a lot of these things, we're talking about like 0.014% chance of even getting this stuff in the first place. So um, you know, we don't have to dive too deep into it, but that's essentially where I stand on that. Well, and then they're filled with like aluminum, which is a known neurotoxin, right? So or mercury or something. Well, yeah, I think it's they switch. The flu shot too. They still recommend yeah. the flu shot multiple times a year. Yeah. And this thing still has thimerosal. Yeah, so that, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And last thing I'll say on that too, is like when you said, when you start reading into this stuff, sort of becomes obvious that none of this makes a lot of sense. And it's so funny because like you said, very data-driven stuff right here. It's all out there. And they'll use that same logic with why you need it. So I think it's just it's just really funny how people yeah, like turn way, numbers around and how they come up with numbers here. for various um, what is this solutions that so they want the to sell. Physicians for but anyway, that's the last thing I'll say on that. We can talk about the more happy stuff. If you mm-hmm. guys want to educate yourself, especially for any new new potential parents out there, watch the YouTube videos from the Physicians for Informed Consent. It will blow your mind. Yeah. Well, like, have you gone to checkups, anything? And, and has it been uncomfortable, like speaking with the doctor about these things? Or have you just been kind of completely on your own um, since the birth? Uh, we've been more decentralized in our mindset. So we haven't gone to any conventional pediatricians, yeah. conventional doctors. Um, we've, got, we've mostly relied on the midwife the first six weeks, the, the midwife checkups. Everything has looked fantastic so far. Jaundice has gone away um, faster than expected, especially for con- compared to normal babies. We've um, we actually went to from that physician for invo- informed consent. We went to a doctor, Bob Sears, and he takes a more um, decentralized approach, let's say, because he he offers an alternative jab schedule, but he also offers no jabs at all. So we went to him. Um, he did his regular checkup, but really we're just more so focused on the midwife. I think uh, on Wednesday is our last checkup with them. And from there, like there's really no need to go to any centralized establishment because we have everything in checked and, and he's a healthy baby boy. So, yeah. And he's how old now? Three months? Uh, seven. He just turned seven weeks on Sunday. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. Wow. Flying by dude, already. Dude, I mean, Enzo's like, he's almost 13 pounds. Yeah, yeah, that's I mean that's fantastic. So that that's really cool to see. Is there anything special that you're doing because uh of the C-section because this is something that Yeah. Um uh, yeah, again, it's it's probably not an ideal choice for a lot of people, but well some people love it in mainstream. They're like, Yo, Yeah, I I literally have stuff. a cousin. I have yeah. a cousin who loves it. Loves yeah, it. All like, over it's easy. I don't even do. I'm walking the <laughs> next day like no problem, but obviously you do get a little, I believe, less uh, microbiota exposure. So is there some things you're doing to help um, accelerate repopulation from the microbiome perspective? 
Um, you know, honestly, just sticking with uh, the usual. So yeah. exclusively breastfed. I think, you know, the, a mother's milk is some of the most powerful stuff out there, especially when you get into immunity and and um, that whole whole rabbit hole. But yeah, exclusively b- breastfed. I never understood why people want to go for C-section straight off the bat because it is a much longer recovery time. Um, and it is a little bit more brutal in terms of how that recovery process is. So we've mainly just been focusing on great sleep. She's getting sunlight in the morning, um, getting as much vitamin D3 as possible from the sun. Photobiomodulation is key on top of that. So we're doing that exclusively as well. Um, beef liver pills. I think beef liver pills from the moment you find out about the birth, even before you tr- you try to conceive, all the way up till, I mean, really until the day you die, I think is a great idea with, with some exception, uh, for people who struggle from iron overload and that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? That's pretty dude, like basics account for most of it, to be yeah. honest. That's really cool. Yeah. I mean, it's exciting. Um, I guess in, in general, how, how is the, the care or how have you thought about things like in general from, from raising your child, like how things are going to progress from, you know, you're not going to do daycare. You're not going to do any of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, are you fully committed to homeschooling or unschooling and kind of going about that the, the best way possible? Yeah. I mean, that was uh, that was something I thought about uh, in, de- in depth, especially with the, the public school system, because I went through the whole ever since like kindergarten through eighth grade, I went to a private school, religious private school, and then I transitioned to a public high school. So there's a part of me that does believe that blood is king that eventually like whatever you throw at the kid, they're going to figure it out and become more yeah, soft yeah, and yeah. decentralized in their philosophy. But I don't want to put them through that. So I think we're going to end up going through homeschool. Um, it, it's on me as the man to make enough money and to, to provide and protect as much as possible to be able to have that opportunity. But I think we'll figure it out. Um, it's certainly going to be better than the curriculum that they offer in a, <laughs> in a public school. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my boss actually took all their kids this last year out of public school and started homeschooling them uh, entirely, which is like, I think it's really cool. Sounds a little bit stressful with, with three kids at once, but, yeah. but I'm, sure, I'm sure in the end, it'll be more optimal, especially for them. And especially from like a critical thinking perspective, I mean, we want our kids to be, you know, critical thinkers and be able to, you know, discern for themselves and not rely on like going to a title to tell them what truth is. So that I think, I think you're doing a real service. How have you treated things um, uh, like with some of the basics and stuff like that? Because I don't know, I've heard various things. I'm hardly the parental expert, but especially around like sun exposure where I had um, a discussion with my cousin recently who had, she has, I swear she has a baby every year now, Um, but she has five children now. And, and she was like, like religiously trying to keep her child out of the sun for like, like protecting their skin and stuff like that. And in my mind, I was like, I just don't think that's the right perspective to take, especially from like the infrared light um, and all that stuff and just keeping them inside like a little box all day. And then on top of that, buying their two-year-old an iPad, I'm just like, you're just like completely ruining their melanin, their neuromelanin, all this stuff. So how have you guys been like approaching sunlight with, with your son? Yeah, so we've been maximizing AM sunlight. You know, I'm a huge proponent of AM early AM and late PM sunlight just because of uh, the filigree production, the fact that you're not getting that harsher UVA, UVB. You're, you're getting mostly a red light, uh, red, um, yeah, red light spectrum in there. 
And um, I think that's the most important thing to, to really build the solar callus that people don't take into account. Because like I'm dosing him with higher UVA and UVB sunlight, but since babies absorb more light than adults, like I'm more focused on five to 10 minutes at the most. But that AM sunlight, I mean, I could push it for 10, 20, 25 minutes max is usually what I'm comfortable with right now. Um, but I find that dangerous to say the least to not put your, your newborn or infant child out under the sun for a limited period of time because you're essentially just keeping them inside and the average person has artificial light on 24 seven. Yeah. And it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting because I've, I've observed, I don't have too many children in my life. My, my girlfriend has quite a few nieces. And so I've sort of been around them more and observed them and they're pretty rarely like outside. I remember growing up, like being constantly outside and each one of them has like their own iPad. And I just find the concept so insane. Um, I mean, the youngest one's two and just drags this thing around and is like super addicted to it. And we were having a conversation with, um, with, uh, her brother the other day or the earlier today. And she was like, yeah, this, I got to like limit her time on, on the screen because she'll just play Roblox for six hours. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're seeing that because that's not for the reasons I'm seeing it, but still good. Like, let's rip that thing away. Cause I, I really think about, I mean, they're, the brain's on everything's so underdeveloped, especially in the beginning to just slap them into it immediately. And I think about in a school setting too, there's a lot of push. My mom's a first grade teacher. There's a huge push for, um, uh, I forget what they call it, but it's like on screen learning. So like half the day you're, ha you're in front of the teacher, half the day you're on a screen. Each kid has like an iPad or a laptop. And they're even doing this in high schools where a local high school near where my folks live is completely half digital. So like half of the day, their day is completely on computers, just like this, like we're doing right now for like four hours straight, just every single day of the school year. And I'm just, I'm just thinking in the back of my head, like their brains aren't developed till 25. Like they're, they're just completely, for lack of a better word, cucking themselves. Like, well, you have to it, think it, about it from just the size perspective, right? Like if yeah. you have a cell phone up to your ear for us, even if we have it up to our ear, it's, it's only going to penetrate maybe like 30% in or 40% where if their skull is half the size, it's going to be going like all the way through. And then they have that extremely high water content, yeah. uh, which is where the EMF destruction is uh, taking place in terms of electromagnetic interference. So yeah, I, I guess my question is, Zade, you know, how have you thought, obviously, if Enzo is only seven weeks, you got you got some time there, of course, but this probably changed your whole paradigm on, on how you're going to, you know, raise your children and everything. Um, is there any big steps you think you're going to take in the future, like moving to a certain area, like moving off grid, um, trying yeah, that's what to I was avoid, ask. avoid technology until a certain age, uh, say, you know, 10 years old, they can start using a, a computer but no handhelds or you know how, how have you thought about kind of that that longer term picture because yeah obviously in a you know a populated area where things are kind of unavoidable and then it's hard to balance you know education of tools like obviously technology is a tool that's very beneficial um but then the detriment is so high i mean i i don't even know my stance on this so, so maybe we can have a little conversation because it's i love that uh, it's so tricky um yeah, I mean, I honestly have not thought about it too in depth just because it's been 
yeah, you know, the you past can. seven weeks has been kind of overwhelming. But um, <laughs> I like honestly, I think less is better. At the end of the day, the, the kid's not going to touch. He's certainly not going to have a phone by the time he's like over ten. I think, in my opinion, I mean, if he's being homeschooled too, let's say we do hypothetically homeschool him. Where is yeah. he going to go where he needs a cell phone in the first place? <laughs> I mean, he's he's a child, um, and you can you can even make the argument against that. Uh, maybe he has to go to a friend's house or something like that. But I think less is better. Um, even now, I'm taking steps to make sure that you know distance is key for non-native EMFs. All this other stuff, airplane mode, being outside as much as we can. Um, but I think uh, you know I am I'm great. I was born in '97. So I'm grateful to have had that experience, a taste of no technology growing up. We were the end. We were the end of that. that tail we end. were the end of that. So, you know, I, I want to try to replicate that for him. Um, and, and really, you know, I, I do think children are more intelligent than we believe, are a little bit wiser than we believe, and they, they pick are. things up quickly. So yeah. if I'm able to teach that in a non-pushy way, a non-pushy sense, then, you know, he'll be hip to it and he'll be really, uh, really into it. So I, I think uh, I, I'm hopeful for the future. That, I think you're sure. right. I think you're right, man. It's lead by example. I'm I'm trying to red pill these little kids. They don't know it. They don't know it. I'm 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 gonna get them <laughs> one day or another. I'm I'm gonna get them in the woods alone. Well, you do have to, to. You do have to have that right. Uh, <laughs> that right balance because otherwise they're just gonna be re, you know, Brazil or not resilient. Um, revolting against your 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 direction and then just going to figure out how to do these things on their own somehow in a way. But, but I think about it this way too. It's like when we're talking about like, I, I know a lot of parents, parental defense, and I hear this a lot because my mom's a teacher. So she deals with parents um, as she puts it deals with parents. Um, but one thing that they'll talk about is like, she'll have kids that are in first grade come to school with an iPhone 13 and it's just like ridiculous. And it's like, does in any realm of, of history, did we need an iPhone 13 for safety or whatever at six years old? I didn't have one. I was running around in my friend's house all over town. And I went home when the lights came on in the streets. And that's how it was. And that's how my parents grew up. And really, it's just sort of referring back to that wisdom. Um, because I think that's a, like, that's a defense I hear a lot is, oh, they'll be safer if they have this around, you know, and they're running around with it. And I'm like, well, how did you guys do it without that thing? Because well, people tell me that too when I tell them to turn their phone off and I, they're like, what if there's an emergency? I'm Every like, day. I hear what it. What do you mean? Like <laughs> the odds of I that mean, are dude, so dude, low listen. and you know, that's just life. You, you can't, <laughs> you don't need to be reachable 24 seven. I mean like God forbid, listen, school shootings have been rising in the U S God forbid something like that happens with any of our children. But the idea that a phone is going to protect them in a scenario like that is stupid. It's not going to do anything. You'll be able to call me. And then outside of that, you're, you're at the mercy of God, to be honest, because it's a phone is just a way of communication. It's not going to protect you in any way, shape or form. Yeah, yeah. it's a funny discussion. I actually that's fine, Tristan, you bring that up because I've had I've had people tell me that thing. And I said, you know, if someone dies and they're trying to reach me and tell me my grandpa died, passed away, I'll still find out in the morning. And the only yeah. difference is I'll have slept better and I'll be better equipped to handle it and not be cranky. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this like reachability thing is a completely new phenomenon. I mean, before, yeah, someone could have called your landline. Um, then before that, it was, yeah, it was just, like write so letters. Like, write a letter. Get you, you wouldn't find out for weeks. For, for weeks anyway. <laughs> so how, how about L.A., man? I guess we talked to Case. Case seemed to oh, yeah. be like wanting to get out of L.A. 
Um, is this something you've been thinking about? And you don't have to have an answer because it's probably, yeah, it's a big question, but I'm curious for all these health centric folks that we're friends with. So I, I understand why Case wants to get out of LA because every time I go to LA, it's, it's a shit show. It's terrible to raise a child in my opinion. I'm in Orange County. So I'm like, oh, okay. I'm about right. 45 minutes to an hour away from LA. And this is more of the conservative, tightly knit area. It's still, there's still a lot of people, but um, Orange County is a nice area because it, I find it to be the balance between you have some space and you're able to do a lot of these things without absolutely being bombarded in a densely populated city. So I, I see myself and our family staying here for the foreseeable future. Um, that's not to say I'm not open to, to moving to a more um, natural setting because I do think I, I want that. So maybe Colorado, Utah, Montana, somewhere along those lines. But for now, we're going we're gonna to stay here. And, you know, we're just going to bolster up the basics. Just make sure that the melanin's on point, the food's on point, light environment, um, everything. Like, you name it, we just want to get down the fundamentals, really. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you have a higher sun and you got the beach as well. So I think, you know, it's, it's a great area, right? It just happens to be, yeah, if you do live in, in L.A. Or, or these areas, it is, you know, you get all the good, more of the good and more of the bad. So I guess it's just balancing that. And if you're deliberate about it, yeah, it's, it's still a, a great place to live. Yeah, I really like OC, actually. My aunt lives down there. I always loved, I actually always loved escaping LA to come visit her when I lived there for a few years. It was great to go down on the weekends and go to the beach. She could practically walk to it from where yep. she was at. So it was like, it was such a good release to be able to do that. So I definitely agree. I mean, if you want to come to Utah, you got friends. If you want to go to Wyoming, Tristan will be there. So <laughs> I'm, not, I'm less cowboy rancher though than Tristan. <laughs> Tristan's more like the on the horse, I, I imagine it with the flannels and the jeans and the spurs. Um, I'm more like sort of uh, uh, what, what do you, my boss always calls me like a like a desert hippie because I'm like walking around with like sandals and like shorts and like my cotton hat and stuff. And yeah, that's kind of sort of my vibe. But I would love to ask you this sort of uh, basic question, but kind of a fun one is how has being a dad changed you? in way in a way that you didn't expect or how how is being being a dad for the first time it has it's definitely made me more mature um, because the the level of responsibility that i have to take on now is is exponentially higher than anything where even even when i was single i mean like even when i was in a relationship with you know just being boyfriend girlfriend like that that was um that was uh, easy mode. That was life on easy mode. And life does get harder when you do have a newborn, you have an infant, you have more responsibility. Responsibility, But I think that accelerates personal development in, in a broader sense because then you get to see the, the finer things in life. You get to think about legacy. You get to think about how um, you want to impact your child in the, in the most beneficial way. And I think that's overall a better thing for society, especially when it comes to the nuclear family units. And the fact that that has largely been destroyed ever since however long. Um, and so I think, yeah, just uh, the, the more responsibility, the better, especially for men. And now my role is to really make a splash in the health world and, and have more of an impact uh, there to then translate into my family life. I think that's beautiful. And I think it's important because I think 
community and, and having a, a tight knit family is, is really important. It's something that I've always been thankful for having. And I never really realized it until the last couple of years where I've really been diving into this stuff, realizing how important that, that familial unit is to, to just your health and just longevity. I've been thinking about how I think about my grandparents differently than I ever did before and like trying to keep them in the fold. And I think that it's, it's something that in, in it's predominantly here in America, I see you have sort of a nuclear group and then you have your grandparent group. And then as you have kids that sort of disappears, you lose that generation, uh, generational stuff. And then you just kind of form your own units that aren't connected. And I really hope that um, people like us can sort of bring that back together and keep the, the family unit, um, you know, close. Cause I, I find it, I do think it's important for longevity and all those things. So that's super cool, man. I'm, I'm happy for you. I'm excited. Yeah. And these kids are going to need all the help that they can get, or, oh. I mean, um, you know, this world is going to need all the help that, that it can get. So to really raise sharp, young, um, sovereign, decentralized people, that's, that's huge in my opinion. I think we need that more than anything. 100%. Um, Tristan, you got anything or feeling pretty good? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Maybe we could just talk a little bit, 15, 20 minutes about we could things it. that you're, you're researching. You're excited yeah. about how has your paradigm shifted in terms of what's most important? How have you incorporated any new habits into your daily lifestyle besides just more sun exposure? I'd love to ask one thing, actually. Well, I'd love maybe to ask one actually, thing. Yeah, or maybe we get into how you've managed, like, obviously you're waking up um, probably often with your newborn. How is yep. that? Have you managed the optimal health lifestyle? Because something, I'll say something that my sister told me is that people, if, if you have a healthier child that actually sleep better and then you don't have to wake up as much yeah. and it's kind of over dramatized on how horrible it is but obviously that might be indicative of the health but you're still going to compromise some sleep quality so yeah maybe we tie that together and then transition out that'd be good sure so in combination with the am pm uh vitamin d3 uva uvb sunlight i i think the biggest change by far that i've made is installing bond charge low emf low flicker bulbs into the room and into the house more so at large so because that just automatically makes sure exactly that just covers you on the the blockage of artificial light protects you protects circadian rhythm circadian biology and it's very important especially for newborns because it it takes a couple of months for their circadian rhythm to fully develop but the funny thing is that if you implement cert, certain strategies that we're talking about that can accelerate so instead of 4 or 5 months that circadian rhythm can kick in at 2 months and uh, we're starting to notice that because Enzo has very, you know, he's he's uh, he's asleep by like 8.30, like clockwork. He takes a couple naps during the day. Um, he wakes up around, I mean, at this point, he goes like six, seven hour stretches of sleep uninterrupted, which is great. But uh, the, the beginning part was definitely tougher because I had to wake up seven, eight, nine times. Um, and, you know, in terms of the optimization, I was... I, I tracked it with my aura ring. I was still able to get great sleep just because of the whole light environment and, and the fact that, that was kept in check. So uh, I, I do think that if you're approaching a newborn and an infant from the conventional lifestyle, then it's going to be a lot harder. If they're infant uh, formula fed, then they're going to be much more fussier. 
if they're under artificial light, then the same thing applies. So I do think a lot of this comes from lifestyle. Um, but ever since, I mean, I'm still able to get great sleep. My fiance is able to get great sleep. I just think it's more fragmented. So you could even make an argument that it's more evolutionary consistent because like, I mean, when did we sleep for eight hours un in, in, uninterrupted, right? Yeah, probably not often, to be honest. That's something I think about too, especially in the summer. They got like 10 hour or, you know, it's light for 15 hours then. Yeah, I don't think we were sleeping for more than six hours probably as well. Yeah. It'd just be wasted opportunity. But in the winter, probably sleep a little bit more. But yeah, that's that's I, really cool. I mean, it, it goes to show with everything. I think, you know, everything is normal, but it's not normal. It's common. Like that's that's the difference. That's big. Is this is what's common. It's not normal. Like PMS and just waking up every hour and a half for your baby or, or just just having these symptoms like they're not normal they're common because of the poor health of society and it just shows you right there like that's an indicator that you know the health of your child is is, is pretty optimal so uh, that would just get me so excited as well i mean okay. i feel like it must be really exciting for you as well you have this like wow this blank slate to really like give this child the best health possible with all the knowledge I have, you know, it's, it's kind of like taking everything that you would have done to yourself if you had known everything, but then you get to do it from day one. So it, it's I so can't, empowering. can't think of it more exciting thing, man. I mean, empowerment is a word that, that comes to mind because if I, if I knew this stuff as a kid, I would become even, even a bigger unit. And the fact that <laughs> I, I want to create, I want to create Enzo into a force of nature. So it's going to be very fun to see. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, just the fact that he didn't get any jabs and his light environments in check, that to me means the world. That's 99 percentile the right there. Immediately, yeah. immediately. And then you add in the food quality and breastfeeding. And it's like, it's not that hard, people. Come on. <laughs> no no aluminum or uh, mercury toxicity for us. <laughs> How long do you, what's optimal like breastfeeding length? Oh. Um, in terms of like the, the meta perspective or like yeah. an individual feeding? Uh, oh, just like, just like the meta perspective. Just like, it's like years, isn't it? It's like as long as you can pretty much. As long as you can pretty much. But I, I don't understand why people have this stigma of like a four or five-year-old breastfeeding. I really don't. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's more... I, actually, I have no idea. Like, I can't even. Well, I just, I just ask because I run into like two types of people. It's like the people. Well, one they either do none at all, and then there's the ones that do it like five years or something wild, and then there's the ones that do it like four to six months. And it seems yeah, to be like so the three types my, of people. My experience, um, I think it's around two to three years is like common because there's some biological things you could check to where it. It, it'll naturally, your milk production will naturally go down unless you have another child. So really, yeah. that's mm -hmm. where it kind of becomes like, yeah, Weird. if you have a four-year-old, five-year-old, but you also have a one-year-old, then you could breastfeed them both. But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, my sister stopped after a year, year and a half. She just became too taxing. But I, I think like two, three years, I'm not an expert here, of course. But I, that's I would say, my understanding. Yeah, I would say minimum six, I mean, mi certainly minimum six months if you're exclusively breastfeeding, which I definitely suggest. Um, but maybe around a year to a year and a half, um, is a good, like higher minimum to aim for. Yeah, um, I, I agree. And again, it's just going to depend on your situation as well. Like, you know, it can become really yeah. uncomfortable. You could, 
get um, just complications, but yeah, it's kind of uh, case by case, but I would say five years is probably ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. I see some of those, some of those on Instagram. Like, and I'm like, wow, eating, so eating meat going, to, that, going to elementary school. I guess yeah. what I find more ridiculous is like the the aversion to breastfeeding in public. Like people get so yeah, offended. oh yeah, yeah. I'm like, this California. is the most beautiful natural part of of human biology and nature. Like, why would you be so hung up on this? Yeah, no, that's true. You know, one thing I always think about when I think about Uzaid is in our last conver- uh, conversation, we talked about detox a lot and how detox is like, like you were saying, more important than food. And I agree to like quite a bit of an extent. I think some of those kind of play together, but now. It's sort of like my question to you is like, where do you stand with redox compared to detox? Where's the where's the line of importance for you now? Uh, many months later, I guess. Well, I think um, I definitely think redox is just as important, if not more important, than detox. Um, you know, in my in my understanding of detoxification specifically has evolved, especially considering the fact that I've uh, I've done a deep dive on melanin. I mean, just the fact that melanin can hold on to and, and adsorb heavy metal ions, I mean, I think that's incredible. The yeah. fact that drugs and, and certain substances can bind and accumulate to melanin, like that, that's crazy in my mind. So um, I do think, actually, you know what? I I've really haven't, like, how would you define redox? Because I haven't done a specific, I haven't looked into redox specifically to understand the technical definition so how would you define it first of all probably push it to tristan on that one he'll probably give a way better <laughs> definition than me <laughs> yeah well, that's the problem when you oversimplify things so, yeah. to me redox like redox homeostasis is really just talking about like mitochondrial health and okay. i mean redox homeostasis is, is managing redox reactions so you could get into reactive oxygen species the reduction and oxidation of electrons um, at a high level how well that's occurring so that, and that's going to be different for, for every person, right? Like, you know, for, for me in Wyoming in the winter, like that's going to look different than you in California in the summer, um, depending on haplotype, melanin, uh, skin but type. That's what's so and, cool. And that's season. what's so cool about it. So, but, but in general, and I've noticed that here, like I came to Australia and actually, yeah, the UV was so high. I noticed actually, if I don't eat a ton of carbs, like in the morning, um, and I spend like a hours in the sun a couple days i got a massive headache and that's because redox my redox is not strong enough or i'm not really built strong enough to and that's probably because i went right from fall wyoming to uv of 12 13 uh, i didn't have this gradual buildup, so that's where the redox was, was not strong enough so obviously things like like carbohydrates can help with that because they're just providing more electron inputs quickly um, and upregulating uh, complex one, but yeah, at a high level, it's just reduction oxidation reactions in your body, and most people's are are very bad because they're exposed to all these toxins and that are generating more free radicals, stealing electrons, and not having that proper flow of, uh, of electrons in the electron transport chain and, and the proton buildup in, in the matrix. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Because for me, all I was going to say really quick was that to me, it's not so much the idea of like, what is the order of importance as much as what is the context of all these things put together? Because if you look at like some of the things like you were saying that melanin does, in some ways that is helping with detox, especially when it comes to like heavy metals and and certain things like that. And actually the nicotine thing binding to to melanin, I think that was like a crazy thing that I read um, a while ago. But 
But if you think about it, it's, it's less about the importance and order of operation. I mean, it is, but it's more about how do they all work together? And it's not looking at each picture individually that I think that was sort of the trick question I was trying to ask you was mm. it's not, it's not looking at them as separate entities as far as like, where does this play a role in all of the things that matter? Because that's what I've come to realize is that it's like working on all the things together. Now you maybe attack certain things in a different order or at a different severity, but they, at the fundamental level, all these things are happening to create, you know, mitochondrial health. So yeah. you kind of need to have all of them. But it's it was laying just, the it, foundation, really, to be yeah. honest. I mean, the problem with the detox community is like, oh, <laughs> if you just detoxify all this shit, you're going to feel better. But you're not exactly. like you're not addressing the foundation of, of the issues. Um, and then, yeah, you get into like exclusion zone and things of, you know, what's keeping toxins out of your cell. Those don't exist without proper redox as well. But yeah, I guess from I know you're researching more of the detox stuff in general, like how, what did you come upon Zay that you think is really effective maybe besides melanin or, or what's the, the conclusion of thought there? Cause this isn't a rabbit hole that I've really gone down a ton to be honest either. And well, I w- there's a ton of heavy metal exposures, things like that, that we still are facing on a day to day. Yeah. I think it's, it's all, it comes down to the simple principles at the end of the day. If you can build up enough melanin, if you can sweat consistently, especially from active movement, so from training in hotter environments, because I've actually seen research to show that um, active dynamic movement while sweating is more effective than just sitting in a sauna stationary. Yeah. And this makes sense when you start to think about the lymphatic system and how yeah. comprehensive that is. Um, and outside of that, just making sure that you maintain a healthy lifestyle. So avoiding municipal tap water, making all the arrangements in terms of your lifestyle, getting all the toxic care products out of the way. Um, it, it really does come to that because the body will take care of everything else. And I think, you know, you are right, Ryan, because it's not about comparing the two. It's more so about getting to the, to the foundational level of reality, and which is why I'm more interested in quantum biology now. Like that's really the deep dive that I'm going on. And, you know, especially when you study the relationship between uh, water, melanin, light, like that stuff is, it's so mind boggling. But if you can understand it from a simple perspective, that it really does like you are addicted to trying to understand it even more. And for me, that's, that's really the territory that I'm diving into now. Yeah. And I think it's like, you don't even need to go down this detox rabbit hole, really, because if you get like you're saying, if you step one, if you remove more of the toxins and then you prioritize the lifestyle habits, you're actually going to give your body the chance to naturally like your body knows how to detoxify. Your body knows how to perform cell cleanup and repair and, you know, cause or program cells to commit suicide because they're damaged. So that's what you need, but you can't do that if you don't have proper circadian rhythm and melatonin production and getting that quality sleep, which is something you've been, you know, that's been your number one priority for for years now. And it's just under discussed. It's like these fancy, you know, protocols. Sure, they can be helpful, but if you just give your body the opportunity to do it itself, and if you have the right energy, like coming to, you know, melanin and redox to do these tasks and you know you're not eating 45 times a day and right before bed and whatever you're you're going to be fine and light as well light is an energy source that your body needs to perform these tasks so 
Um, but the sauna stuff, school sweating, yeah, getting that out, it's all it's all really helpful. But you know, there is some stuff as well that I, it, it just gets even more scary when you know you hear about these forever chemicals and other things oh, yeah. that you, say, uh, yeah, you yeah. can't get out of your system, or it's a bit more complex and it's hard to really form a protocol around that, but you don't, I think just doing the foundational things and then avoiding exposures, is probably the best we can do at, at this point. Um, I, I, I would say it's, but you can become neurotic about it very easily just because yeah, of exactly. how many toxins there are. And it's yeah. sad. And, and that's the thing too, is like one of the things that I find really interesting now that we're having this discussion, we're all sort of been talking about this bigger picture is I'll give an example of sort of the mold community and the way that we view like mold's a very hot topic toxin right now in the space. And um, one of the issues or one of the markers that'll come back for a Sears test, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, is low alpha MSH. Well, what is alpha MSH responsible for, right? Goes back to the light story. So I just did a little Jack Cruz thing there. You notice that with the light story? Anyway, <laughs> but but... But, but it does. And so there, it's like this whole, it's this whole picture that I think we need to really stop looking at it as like this one thing for each problem and really look at it on a more high level. Because I always bring people up to this point of view where it's like many people have lived in mold, predominantly like South America, where it's more humid, don't have the problems that we have up here with mold, seemingly. Um, why is that? The redox is probably way better. Um, stuff like that. And so for me, when I think about it now on a much higher level, it's like if you're not working on some of those principles on top of maybe some of the detox principles with mold or whatever you're dealing with, then you're not actually going to get the health you're seeking because you may get it out of you, but what's to prevent it from ever making it an issue again? You're not giving yourself the building block to be mitochondrial, uh, mitochondrially like resilient. So you need to have the full picture to actually get what you want out of it. It's not just about getting it out. It's about preventing it from messing you up again down the line. And so that's where you see people like Michaela Peterson or whoever who had these issues. They're still kind of stuck on that one paradigm and they moved to a whole new location, moved to Arizona to be away from humidity and be away from the mold and all this stuff. And like, yeah, that's probably like a good right now solution, but we're not looking at the big picture because you shouldn't have to worry about that. And so it comes full circle. But super interesting. I get very heated about it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I get heated a lot about a lot in regards to a lot of this stuff. Um, I, I think really my main focus now is is bringing, I mean, palm C pro opio melanocortin and, and all the cleaved peptides associated with it. Like that stuff is mind blowing to me. So really, what I want to do is I'm going to start working with clients in person um, by partnering with a company that that I've worked for part time for for quite a bit of time now. And I, I want to introduce the whole light story to these to these people because that's really what I think can move the needle. Because frankly, they're just completely blissfully unaware of it. So if I can start to introduce light environment with the understanding of POM C, alpha MSH, beta MSH, all that stuff, and um, create a comprehensive system and then deliver it in person for people who have no idea on this stuff. I think that can really start to, um, it, it can start more of a grassroots perspective. So uh, that, that's very exciting for me. Yeah, and I love the stuff that you're sharing along the way. I think that's one of the best things about following people like yourself or Tristan over here. Probably not me on Twitter because I'm just kind of messing around and like reading a bunch of stuff. But it's, it's cool that- 
me. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fun to watch people learn and share the information they're learning as they're doing it. They're like living the example. And I think that's the best thing ever is just seeing people grow over time. And that's why I wanted to talk to you again, because you've had so much growth and experience change in just the short amount of months since we spoke last. So it's, it's a fun conversation, but rounding out, where can people reach out to you, find you, follow you, got great threads, uh, got a great podcast, uh, and I'll drop all those in the show notes as well. I will say, listen to episode one, then come here because you'll see the changes and I think it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram at Zaid K. Dehaj. Um, you guys will have a link, so no need to spell it. Uh, the 2AM podcast is a big, big thing for us. We're going to start producing more content for that. I've been covering more health topics. I think we're definitely going to cover light uh, exclusively on an episode, uh, maybe some other things as well, but that's basically where you can find me. Cool beans. Well, I appreciate everyone joining us for a whirlwind episode of Decentralized Radio, and I'll catch you all in the next one.